Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today's podcast is with Webb Smith, a person I look up to on all things D2C and commerce. If you thought about starting your own D2C brand or online shop, you should listen to this podcast. Webb has a lot of great advice here. Webb has a long history working in the industry. He managed marketing spend for Rogue, a leading sports good manufacturer back in 2011. Then he went on to found Mizzen and Maine and later joined Gear Patrol. In 2015, he started 2PM, a B2B media company for the commerce industry and advises leading executives in this space. Through 2PM, Webb also invests in early stage DTC brands and platforms that are supporting this ecosystem. On the podcast, we chat about the rise of DTC and how e-commerce has changed over the past decade, how to build a new DTC brand today, so take notes if you're thinking about one, and some of Webb's favorite online stores as well, including Away and Chubby's. Now, one note I'll say is the audio quality isn't as good as we prefer. We actually caught Webb while he was in between his travels at the airport, so I apologize for that. But it's a good show nonetheless. And before I jump in, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors. We all know you didn't start a business to track financial statements and make cash flows as spreadsheets. Probably not the most fun thing for most founders, I'm sure. Using Pilot for bookkeeping gives you back the freedom to focus on your business. Every month, your dedicated account manager will send you an accurate, detailed financial report. Pilot does accrual-based bookkeeping in QuickBooks Online, so you're never locked into their single platform. Plus, you'll work with the same person each month, so you can rely on them to become an expert in your business. With Pilot, you can say goodbye to exporting CSV files and emailing attachments to a bookkeeper that you can never get a hold of. And the first 100 signups will get 20% off Pilot Core for six months if you go to pilot.com slash product Thanks for coming on, Webb. It's my pleasure. So you're, you're at SFO right now. You're, you're hopping. You're, you're uh, <laughs> all over the place right now. What, do you, what have you been up to? It's a great question. 2 p.m. has been keeping me pretty busy. It's a combination of essentially three, co- three companies under one umbrella. B2B, subscription media, direct-to-consumer investing, and growth consulting for companies and brands in the ecosystem. So yes, I travel probably every week uh, and I will continue to do so as long as my wife doesn't get upset with me. Yeah. How did you get into 2PM? Like what's your kind of your background if, for those that maybe aren't as familiar? Yeah. So I would say that my the genesis of my real e-commerce experience began at Rogue, which is a, a direct-to-consumer fitness company out of Columbus, Ohio. Very, very underrated company. They, they're just magnificent leadership. I was marketing there for a time, paid paid marketing and all that, and uh, learned from some real killers in the industry. I think they have something like 600 people now, wow. uh, just doing enormous numbers across fitness and NCAA athletics and pro sports and everything. Uh, from there, co-founded Mizzen in Maine with Kevin Lavelle. I was their co-founding CMO. That company's done wonderfully. And I hit a rough patch a little bit after that, tried to started another company, didn't work well. I shied away from entrepreneurship for a little bit hmm. and decided to just work for people. So I've managed e-commerce for uncreate.com. So that was my first real attempt trying to build e-commerce on top of a, an existing premium publisher. And then I was the director of e-commerce at Gear Patrol where I did the same thing. And it was at Gear Patrol that I had the idea for 2PM. I wanted a B2B publication for me and my peers. And I just started it as a hobby and it, it ballooned into what it is today. Yeah. It seems like I, maybe it's, it's just me. Maybe, maybe I'm just new to this, but uh, it feels like D2C and e-commerce is, is going through kind of a transformation over the past few years or so. And 
I don't know what what kind of trends have you seen, and and how have you seen the the space evolve over even maybe the, the over the past decade? Because if you look back, you know, a decade from now too, we didn't have at least the maturity of something like Shopify and other tools out there. I don't know what have you seen. Well, I think the first and foremost thing that I've realized is the industry is filling up pretty quickly. It's a really dense area for people that want to become founders. They're highly educated founders from great schools. Funding is easy to come about in the D2C space, at least for the time being. So they're coming out of the gates from Wharton or wherever uh, with $3.5 million in the bank. You know, they're dealing with Jen Lane and Red Antler, whoever, King and Partners, and their PR deal with JBC or whomever. And they're coming out of the gates firing. And they're probably going to get to that next milestone because they have the right founders and the right teams and the right money. That's the story of tens, if not hundreds of direct-to-consumer brands that have launched in the last two to three years. So it's going to become, it's going to become a, a battle to discern which companies have the sticking power and, and what a possible exit will look like. I think that we're maturing in that sense in the, in the context of you know, Casper's potential IPO that will set sort of a standard for, for other brands looking to, to exit in that manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at a lot of companies that are developing holding companies for, for these types of brands. So that, that's another potential exit. And then sort of the third prong is, I don't think the D2C industry is going to die anytime soon. I think it's important that we consider how crucial it is for physical real estate. You mentioned Casper. Casper has physical locations now and, and they have pop-ups and Warby as well, which started off as D2C e-commerce also has physical locations. It's kind of interesting to see these companies, which in some ways are innovating and, and for lack of a better word, disrupting sort of the traditional brick and mortar model or are now moving into brick and mortar. Is that because that's where customers are? I mean, I, I think you may know this better than I do, but I think 90% of transactions are, are physical, you know, at brick and mortar, not, not e-commerce. Is, is that what you've seen? in terms of the, the metrics and the reports? Yes. So e-commerce penetration is growing probably one percentage point every every year. So I think it's 12% of all retails attributed to e-commerce in America right now. That number is far greater in China. But as it relates to the specific topic of physical retail, you know, these mall developers need these brands. You know, they need the Caspers, the Warbys, the Aways, the Allbirds to fill the void of companies that are falling to the wayside, traditional companies that are falling to the wayside. So I, I think that that alone will help to continue propping the industry up. It should be interesting to see, but from all developers like Maysearch and Brookfield Properties and Simon Properties, they need the D2C era to succeed. Yeah. What are your thoughts on brick and mortar in terms of the strategy? At what point do D2C brands or, or traditional e- e-commerce brands, when should they expand into a physical distribution strategy? So there are two forms that you have to consider. There's what I call direct retail. There are many brands, even traditional ones, that pursue direct retail today. J. Crew, right? They don't sell in any other companies, any other retailers. They only sell in their own stores. Mm-hmm. I think that it's smart for D2C brands to pursue direct retail, owning their own storefronts where they can collect all the data on the consumer. They can interact directly with the consumer. They can educate the consumer on their product. That's important. The next phase is probably wholesale, which provides these types of brands with surefire revenue every month. Retailers like Nordstrom and Saks and Barney's and Dick Sporting, it's where, wherever the money's coming from. That's another avenue for these brands. I just think it's probably the third priority for them. Yeah. If you were actually, let's go through an exercise. Let's say um, if you were to start a new, new e-commerce brand and site today, 
what would be your, your first sort of first steps? And, and the reason why I'm asking is there's a lot of people who are on product hunt that might be listening to this podcast that have thought about setting up a Shopify store and thought about, you know, productizing some idea or maybe even a hobby that they have. Like my mom, for example, used to uh, create necklaces just for fun, you know, mostly just selling locally in Eugene, Oregon. But, you know, nowadays you could set up a Shopify site, but what would be your sort of advice or, or how would you kind of approach that if you're starting something from scratch today? It's a really great question. If I was starting a D2C brand today, I would actually start with a media company. I would launch a newsletter a year before or, or a Glossier type uh, blog a year or two before. I know that may sound far-fetched, but a lot of these companies, especially the ones that are going through the Gen Lane process or the Red Antler process, they've been in the works for a year and a half it'd be worth their while to develop an organic base of people that are interested in the product that they have, the products that they have coming along through the pipeline. So I build the audience first before I launch the single product. And that sounds counterintuitive, but you're seeing a premium on the brands that have that type of organic acquisition. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of like building an audience first. I, I wrote a, a blog post about this a, a year or so ago and partly just reflecting on my own experience with Product Hunt. I didn't have a big audience, but I had at least enough people in technology listening that when Product Hunt launched, I could drive some engagement and get people activated and kind of contributing. And it sounds like a very similar type of approach to, to what you're describing when it comes to building an audience that maybe is super excited about what you're building or the brand or the content or the topic that then would want to go and buy and, and either use or wear whatever the merchandise is. What other kind of examples of that have you seen recently of, of companies that sort of started with this audience first model? Well, I think the easiest one to point to is Glossier, right? And so the gloss began in 2011. Emily Weiss's first products didn't launch until 2015, I want to say. Obviously, she, her company is now a unicorn. Uh, the vast majority of their acquisition comes from Into the Gloss and other organic sources. I think it's a testament to what you can do if you actually emphasize building an audience versus focusing solely on paid acquisition. Kind of going to the paid acquisition side, it feels like a lot of the D2C companies are able to succeed because of the targeting that's now available on Facebook and Instagram and other platforms. It's now possible to hyper-target and you know reach the people that might be super into your niche. How have you kind of seen that evolve? And, and is that also a risk in that the DC market and, and much of e-commerce, at least new brands rely on that? Oh, absolutely. It's a risk. Paid acquisition is very important. Uh, I'm not going to downplay its importance in, in the ecosystem. I think there are brands that depend on it solely. And I think that's scary. If you ask the traditional CMO today, I just wrote a post about this. If you ask the, the traditional CMO in the DTC space, they're going to say paid acquisition is, is their, first, their first avenue. I think it should be your second or third avenue. As acquisition costs continue to rise, you're going to see more and more brands being priced out and then having to figure out how to grow from there. What are some of the other strategies that we've seen that have been effective? I mean, part of it's building content that people like that, you know, retain people. Maybe it's a newsletter, like, like you're doing it at 2 PM to some extent. What are some of the other kind of acquisition or or growth strategies that you've seen work well in this space? Sure. I think that uh, traditional partnerships are underrated. Finding voices, finding traditional people, or I guess authentic people that are that are focused on your industry or that have an appreciation for your for your product, and doing a deal to help reach their audience, I think that's a really effective tool that can be duplicated, especially if that duplication is is authentic. Another thing that I probably don't see enough of is affiliate marketing for a lot of these brands. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had these conversations with direct consumer brands and I have to explain to them what skim loose was. They have no concept of working with publishers like the gear patrols or the, you know, the strategists or, you know, landing in wire cutter, or who knows where, um, and what that can do for top line sales in a relatively, relatively inexpensive manner. Uh, you're talking about seven to 12% margins on sales for, for affiliate fees versus, you know, who knows what for, for customer acquisition costs, traditional customer acquisition costs rather. Yeah. Which could be, you know, half your margin in some cases right. or maybe more <laughs> depending yeah. on what you're selling. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, um, we often talk about like some of the products or apps or things that, that people use and love, but of course I'm kind of curious to know, like what are the, maybe the three, three awesome e-commerce companies that either you use as a customer or, or maybe companies, D2C brands that you are just really excited about any that kind of pop up to mind. Oh man, that's a great question. I, I'm a really big fan of Away, which mm. I have to be very careful not to uh, be biased. I, I cover a lot of companies. I analyze a lot of companies. Um, Away does a lot of things right. Granted, they have a lot of money in the bank, so they have more opportunity than most direct consumer brands, but their leadership is really savvy. And mm. I think that they have, the, they have the ability to branch out into different verticals that maybe the other direct consumer brands can't. Part of that reason is because they focused on building a true fandom with their consumers. I remember seeing, I've met Jen, the CEO of, of Away and years ago and when they were pretty early on and, you know, I, I remember seeing it and admiring it, but I, I also, honestly, I, I maybe underestimated uh, the market and the ability to sell a product that one, not many people buy, you know, luggage. It's for those that don't know, Away is, is essentially a luggage company. At least that's what they started off as. And how often do you buy luggage? Pretty frequently. So you know, you're, you're looking to acquire a customer that may, may not buy another bag for several years, if ever again. And I found that is just a really hard business to, to build and scale, but they've done a fantastic job, clearly. Do you know, do you have insight or, or kind of what's your perspective on like, what did they do right that maybe some of the others didn't? They're really great at brand marketing. And to your point about product offering, it's funny, you know, I, I'm sitting here at the Delta Lounge in SFO. And a guy just walked past me with this with this away luggage and <laughs> just sort of laughs, right? That happens a lot when you're in airports, right? Yeah. Especially if you have the same color luggage. They focus on brand outside of traditional paid channels better than most companies in their space. Better than most companies in the D2C space. You know, they have their magazine, they do great partnerships. I think their their deal with Dwayne Wade was smart. 2 p.m. broke news just last week about the fact that they're looking for a director of CPG. That, that means that they're likely to launch a wellness product, a wellness line under the Away umbrella, you know, for for their consumers. So when it comes to their CRM of millions of customers, both potential buyers and actual buyers, they can now sell them something else that costs cheaper and costs, you know, and, and, and must be replenished uh, a lot more frequently than obviously a luggage. So that's that's their strategy, right? They, they they sold a premium product, or at least a product that's perceived to be premium, for three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, and they have all these capable consumers now that they can sell the twenty five dollar, you know, travel face cream or whatever. I don't know, but you get the point, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, that type of product differentiation is very important in the industry. Yeah, I, I remember their their partnership with Minions, the movie. 
and they have those bags that kind of look like those little yellow minion characters. And I found that brilliant. It was fun. It was playful. That bright yellow color stood out, of course, at airports, made people look, especially if you saw three or four of them within a short, short trip. You're going to ask, like, what is that? I think there is an element, a lot of people that build software or startups, you think a lot about like online distribution and less about people generally think a lot less about the physical, like real world in-person word of mouth kind of distribution. And I think even an example of this, like way back in the day is, is like the early days of Square. Square's initial product, it was that kind of like kind of cool, but kind of janky looking dongle <laughs> that you plugged into the audio jack and your, your iPhone, you know, and uh, that, that visual artifact was something that like made people question like what is that like what is this company what is that square company like what is that dongle you have in your phone and i think that those small kind of subtle almost product decisions i think are so important for you know both both a physical company like like away but also even like mostly software driven companies as well sure full circle about our conversation on physical retail i think that's that's the importance right there, there's a lot of power in seeing a product in the wild and not only seeing the product itself but seeing who owns the product right Typically, especially for a product that costly, when you're talking about a $300 plastic shell luggage, right? The, the buyer clearly has an affinity for that brand mm-hmm. because there might be a better bag that you can buy for that, for that much money. So you're seeing a particular customer, a customer that you're, that you're probably identifying with in some way, shape or form. That person helps to continue forging your appreciation for the company itself. And I don't think that brands think about that very often. They think about D2C in the context of one-on-one relationships and not enough about D2C in the context of a cohort of people that are involved in that one-on-one relationship. Yeah. What, what other D2C brands or companies are you admiring? Yeah, I think Chubby's does a great job. Uh, oh, Chubby's. Yeah. The, the, the kind of almost ridiculous, but playfully fun short shorts for guys. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not a fan of the, I, I'm not going to wear the shorts, but I think they, they've done a great job building their brand and building their, their customer loyalty. They send hilarious emails that I have to, I have to give them props for. Even if I don't open it, the subject line tends to make me at least smirk. Like they're just, they're, yeah. they're very savvy copywriters. I think that goes a long way. You know, I think that third love and adore me are doing wonderful things in, in women's intimates. I know that we're going to see a, an interesting battle between all birds and Adams Mm-hmm. I don't know if Adams is going to have a chance against Allbirds, but I do think that the the founding team is very strong, very savvy, and very determined. So I'm anxious to see how they're going to innovate and, and carve out their own niche within that that D2C space. Um, that, those are uh, you know just a handful of the companies that I'm looking at right now. Yeah, Adams, we we saw really early on met the founders and and was really impressed with their attentiveness to their customers in the beginning and. In fact, uh, you know, the CEO delivered, hand-delivered shoes to me, you know, months and months ago. I think it's probably over a year and a half ago now when they were just in the kind of beta stages. And um, I know they've done that with a lot of their early customers to kind of build, build initial community and, and sort of uh, love sort of for the brand. I think it's really smart. How do you think about defensibility in this space though too? I, I think part of it is certainly physical distribution. There's some defensibility there because, you know, overnight you can't just, you know, pop up retail stores all across the world. Uh, the brand itself has defensibility to some extent when you have 
an audience of people who love it and, and appreciate it, maybe even wrap their identity around it like I do with with Phil's coffee to some extent. How do you think about other aspects of defensibility for those that might be exploring this space? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll pose this question to you. Uh, which brands, which two or three brands do you talk about on a weekly basis at least, daily or weekly basis? Yeah, good question. So I already mentioned Phil's. I'm a big Phil's fan, partly because I go there almost every morning and, and product hunt started that Phil's. So I sort of have a lot of appreciation and loyalty to it. You know, I do drink a lot of LaCroix. Um, <laughs> I'm drinking one right now and, and I know they've done an amazing job. Their stock price will, will reflect that over the past three or four years. I don't know. Those are the two that jump out to me immediately. I, I think that you are certainly a component of LaCroix, LaCroix's brand defensibility. When I think of people that have talked about LaCroix in the past or, or tweeted about it or evangelized it, I, you're in the top five. So I think that there's an element of brand defensibility that, that most D2C brands don't consider. And that's who are the people that are defending their purchases? How are they talking about those purchases to their friends and their loved ones, right? How loyal are they? Will they come back to buy the next thing that you sell? I think that's an element of defensibility that maybe goes a little bit unconsidered. You know, look at it from a macro standpoint. When, when Nike released the ad for Colin Kaepernick, mm-hmm. Nike knew what it was going to do. It was going to polarize a customer base. But they also knew that the folks that were on their side would spend a lot of time and energy defending Nike's decision and, mm-hmm. and what that would do to amplify the brand for the customers that are like those defenders, Right. And what you saw was a resulting spike in the stock price over the next several weeks. And I think they've been trading at, at all-time highs in the last month, where most of the detractors felt that it was going to tarnish the brand. I think of brand defensibility in the context of people probably more than most, but I think it's an effective consideration. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that also plays into community, I, I presume. I mean, community does not need to be a part of every company strategy, certainly, but building community around a product too could, could tremendously help that, that word, effect, word of mouth effect, but also get people more invested and kind of excited to be a part of that mission. And, and Glossier, for example, you know, is very community focused, unlike many other kind of D2C companies. And I think that's, that's helped them get them to where they are at this point. Sure. Um, you can also point to uh, Recess. Yeah, he's he's doing a lot to cultivate that type of community with his physical locations, and I think that that's going to pay long term long term dividends for for the company that he's hoping to build. Yeah, recess for those that don't know, it's a, a CBD drink, and it's it's kind of in some people have equated it to Lacroix in terms of it just appeals to I think a similar demographic and has a very pronounced brand. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but if you go to their website, uh, just like Google recess drink, you'll see just a very, very interesting, unique kind of take in, in a landing page for a drink, which you normally wouldn't see. You normally wouldn't get excited or, or even think to be inspired to buy a drink based on the landing page, but they've done a really good job of that. And I'm on their email list. I get their notifications of their events that they're doing, I think, mostly in New York, if I'm not mistaken. They, they seem to be doing some really interesting things around events and bringing people together in life. I would agree. Finn is a very interesting conversation if you ever want to have him on. Really interesting uh, young man. He has some, some hardened ideas. Good luck trying to convince him that your way is the right way. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it's working for him. Yeah. What other trends have you seen in the market? Are, are there others that you kind of see maybe nascent right now, but, but might be the, the norm in the next one or two years? 
yeah, I've, I've been more and more focused on health and wellness in the last several months. There's a measure called HRV that I think Whoop, so, so Whoop is a fitness tracker. You know, there's a measure that's becoming popularized. It's called the HRV, heart rate variance. And it's been typically used to measure recovery for elite athletes. But more and more, it's being used for or by entrepreneurs and other high-risk professionals to measure their own levels of stress, like stress on their central nervous system. So in the context of recess and CBD drinks, and I think that there are going to be a lot of brands popping up around the idea that they can help you calm your central nervous system down and improve your HRV. A measure that I'm finding is uh, is a significant number, a significant uh, indicator of stress levels for for entrepreneurs like the two of us. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like selling selling a mood, which is what Recess really does with its branding. It's it's in many ways selling a feeling, and I think even I think that might even be part of their slogan is is uh, or at least some of the the copy on their website is about the the feeling or the the effect that you want from this product which is very different from a scientific-based or more clinical-based description of what CBD is and its effects. Well, to that point, HRV is a a, a very, it's a a quantitative measure. It's a number. It's a number that, that, that I track for myself every single day. So I think it's really important to consider that there are elements like recess or, you know, drinks like recess that can have an effect on that number. If I have a, a can of recess before I go to sleep, my HRV will be higher than it would have been otherwise. I've, I've tested this numerous times. So I think that, I think that that will be a cottage, a cottage industry for health and wellness products. Very cool. So what's next for you? What's, what's going on at 2 PM and, and where are you traveling to? It's <laughs> a great question. You know, 2 PM at its heart is a B2B media company. I don't know how big that cohort is. I don't know if it's going to be, 30,000 paid subscribers in a few years or, or 100,000. But my, my goal is to focus on the operators in and around you know, brand, media, e-commerce, and agency spaces. Now, as the company continues to grow and as we get more and more into direct you know, one-on-one consulting with a lot of high-level companies like Verizon Media and ShipBob, and we'll see where the company takes us. But the thing that I'm most excited about is how much direct-to-consumer investing I get to do now. Yeah, are you investing very often in companies that you're, you're uh, advising or, or maybe companies you're not advising yet? A little bit of both. I mean, a lot for me, I guess. I don't know in the context. I mean, obviously, you, you work with some, some pretty serious investors, but you know, three to four times a quarter is my goal at the, at the seed stage or the angel stage, um, sometimes even pre-launch. So Mm-hmm. It's a really exciting time for me, and I, you know, I have, a, I have a pipeline of these companies, and I just try to uh, provide value for them wherever I can. Nice. Well, where where can they find you on on Twitter, and and what's what's the URL for Two PM to make sure people have that? Sure, I'm just Web on Twitter, W E B. First name uh, club. First name club, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know you can find Two PM at Two PML dot com. Nice. Thanks for coming on, Web. Thanks for for also making time in between your travels. Appreciate it. Likewise, thank you for having me on, Ryan. You bet. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.